Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. My special guest tonight is Candice M. Kelsey. Her second full-length collection, A Girl, Woman, Teacher, Poet, is available now from Alien Buddha Press. And her debut full-length collection, Still I Am Pushing, is out now as well on Finishing Line Press. Welcome, Candice, to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here again. Yes, I'm, you just don't know. I'm, I'm just so happy. Let's begin our poetic journey. Let's begin our poetic journey. Uh, you're a writer, as we know that. What inspired yes. your new book? So um, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but things have been crazy the last couple of years. <laughs> yes, so, yes, sir. Uh, a lot, right? A lot of change. Um, and, you know, likewise, personally, a lot of change in my life. Um, and so, you know, having the time to be, you know, on lockdown and, you know, solely with my family working throughout the pandemic um, in Los Angeles, and then my family moved from Los Angeles to Georgia during those during the last two years, and um, that inspired me to um, transition out of my teaching career into uh, writing full time and working for a nonprofit. So this uh, just sort of dance of change really inspired me to reflect on, you know, what, what does change require of us um, as human beings? And, what, you know, not just the, the, the challenge of it, but also, like, you know, what, what's encouraging? What's, what's worthy? What's beautiful about change? And so the title, I hope, reflects that, of just kind of going from, for me, a girl to a woman, huge time of change, and then, you know, finding my career as a teacher was a huge, you know, change for me, and then leaving teaching and really embracing this identity as poet um, was really kind of triumphant for me, um, you know, whether you consider me a good poet or not poet, if I stink, whatever, but for me to identify um, as a poet more than anything else was a huge um, moment for me, and so this book kind of commemorates that. All right. You know, I can't remember. I mean, it's been a while since we've talked before. But I, I'm wondering again whether I ask this question. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Uh, I have to say yes, as cliche as mm-hmm. that sounds. But, you know, from day one, uh, I was drawn to writing, even more so than reading. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am an avid reader as well, of course. Um, but I was always drawn to writing, um, creating, um, and not, not creating stories or characters or, you know, scenarios, but um, playing with words, really. I mean, those were my playmates as a child, trying to understand how words made sense and where they came from, the etymologies. Of course, I didn't know that word back then, but I was always interested in why this is called that, you know, and, um, you know, why, how languages are different. Um, And I was in uh, middle school and my 
older brother who was in high school at the time said, you know, I have to write a poem for my creative writing class. How am I supposed to do this? And I said, oh, here, I've got about five you can choose from, <laughs> which is terrible. I shouldn't have helped him teach, but uh, he did really well on that assignment, and it kind of gave me a little boost of confidence. Um, so, yes, I do think I was meant to work with words in some way, shape, or form, um, and to see that kind of come to fruition with poetry has been really, um, I don't know, just fulfilling. Well, what surprises you most about being a poet? What surprises me most? Yes. Okay. Um, I would say just the incredibly welcoming and encouraging community of poets. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a bit of an introvert, and um, it's, it's hard for me to kind of find my place in a group of people. And um, I have just found nothing but open arms and, you know, mm-hmm. generative um, – conversations and you know with with my fellow poets and it's been fantastic to exchange poems and encourage each other and you know give feedback and applaud each other when we find our triumphs and comfort each other when we find our you know um, failures and um, so I would say just this wonderful poet poets community is just so invigorating and I just love it I wouldn't have thought that very nice I'm a law all right, school drummer, all right. so when I was in law school, okay. that was the opposite of the community I found was not like this. <laughs> I'm really loving this. <laughs> all right. Well, Candace, please share a poem. Absolutely. Um, well, I will go ahead and read um, the first poem in the collection, um, and this is in the section called A Girl. Um, and... I'll just let it speak for itself, but it was inspired by the unfortunate passing of one of my heroes, Bell Hooks, earlier Mm. um, in the year. Yeah. So this is A Girl Remembers Whale Sharks and Bell Hooks. A girl passed out while diving with whale sharks at the Georgia Aquarium when she was celebrating her 15th birthday. Her father was in the tank with her, as was the largest fish in the world, an ovoviviparous creature whose embryo is formed within the egg, which then hatches in the mother's uterus. The young are released into the sea fully formed. Litters can be more than 300 pups. But even weirder is that their teeth point backwards and their spot patterns are as unique as human fingerprints. The girl had a cold that day and trouble breathing in her mask. It's remarkable to think of her vulnerability like an astronaut floating in the atmosphere. They pulled her out, she was fine, after they gave her a splash of cold air and a shake. She remembered her grandmother in Scranton, who barely spoke English, and stood in her kitchen for hours rolling cabbage, while she sat in the back seat of a woody station wagon coloring her best picture to give her, a grandmother who had barely spoken to her for the 10 short years of her life. It was a deep-sea scene from National Geographic's Magnificent Ocean Coloring Book. Her companion on the 12-hour haul across Ohio through the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Chewing gum and scented markers and the hope of a grandmother's love. When they moved to the backyard to sit under the clothesline, she braved the walk to Grandma Baelish, picture in hand. She looked at it and nodded and handed it back to her. She remembers wanting to swim like a whale shark 
deep into the temperate waters and away from the humiliation. Today, she is 51. She reads a post on Twitter about a grandmother who gave her grandchildren all the pictures they had made her. She had them in garbage bags, one for each child. The overwhelming response was warmth and awe that this grandmother had kept the artwork so long and returned it out of love. She weeps. In a way, her own mother has handed her garbage bags of the stuff she kept over the years. This woman has stored them in her body. A hatred for her thighs and belly, disgust for her arms, the need for male attention. Women like Bell Hooks helped her take out that trash. She carried a slip of paper in her wallet the past 25 years. Quote, if any female feels she need anything beyond herself to legitimate and validate her existence, she is already giving away her power to be self-defining, her agency. These are the words Bell Hooks gave this woman and a generation of women tired of giving themselves to people who, who looked, nodded, and handed them back. A young girl's heart is an ovoviviparous creature. It gives, and it gives endless litters of love until it realizes the embryos hatch inside itself. And that is a girl remembers whale sharks and bell hooks. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, some poems, you need the opportunity to allow them to kind of, I guess as I say, yeah. marinate and, and think. You know, there may be some yeah. in the audience who may not know who Bell Hooks is. Please share ah, your view of Bell sure. Hooks. Definitely. Bell Hooks was just a seminal um, feminist um, from the 70s and 80s and 90s, actually, who uh, wrote you know, incredible pieces of um, literature and essays that challenged um, the status quo for women and also um, challenged uh, racial injustice. Uh, and she uh, passed away this, this past, um, I believe, in December, maybe November or December. Um, and she was just a powerhouse of um, female empowerment and specifically uh, women of color, too. Yeah. You know, I've always wanted to know, and maybe I should have read about it, why did she not capitalize her name? I can't remember uh, why. Yeah. Can you tell me? She, yes. Um, she felt that the um, that the power of um, the power of a name is one that should um, be anchored in agency, and so to follow the set rule of capitalization for a proper noun is something that um, should be challenged. Um, in a sense, challenging the status quo, challenging um, power structure. So it was a little wow. quiet rebellion on her part. Yeah. All right. I remember, I can't remember the title of that book, but I remember in the 90s, and I first saw that she didn't capitalize her name. I was like, wow, that's deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I mean, that was yeah. totally against the norm. <laughs> and, you know, and, it sounds like. Go ahead. No, please continue. No, no, no. No, I I say, it's interesting because <laughs> the the editors um, were they kept capitalizing it when they were working on it, and I kept telling them, no, no, remember, like she just we're not doing that, you know, we're not, yeah, we're not capitalizing it. Um, the book I think you're thinking of it, or maybe is Ain't I a Woman? Um, yes, yes, most notable, yeah, 
most notable um, piece of work, which is really uh, just fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, but, but lots more. Well, I was going to say or say that it sounds like your new book. There's so much emotion involved in it. Being a woman, being a girl, being a teacher, being a poet—that's a lot. That's yes. a full plate in itself. My question is: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> do you think someone can be called a poet? Yes. <laughs> do you think someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? That's my question to you, Candice. Oh. You know, that's a great question. I, um, I'll say this. I think poetry is less about strong emotions and more about observation. Um, I think that, yeah, I think po- a poet is observant. And I, I, I find it hard to, to imagine being able to be tuned in to the world and observant of what's happening and not feel an emotion like empathy or sorrow or jealousy or joy. Um, but I, I don't want to say no, because I think all voices are, are, are worthy of being heard. And there may be a voice that is not as emotional. I mean, there's plenty of poets that um, are a little less emotional and much more, um, you know, straightforward or logical or political. And um, for me, poetry is very connected to um, my attempt to understand things I experience. Um, and I'm, I'm observant, maybe too much so, um, and I am also very in tune with my emotions. Um, but I, I, I think it's really more about, you know, noticing, really noticing. <clears throat> Please share, Paul. Yes, sir. Um, let's see, I'll give you um, this one. Um, Okay, so this is, uh, my, my mother is one of uh, seven sisters, um, and so this one is a little bit of an ode to them. They're, they're uh, my aunts. This is, A Girl Thinks of B. Arthur's Stare. For a rumored 23 seconds in MAME at the Winter Garden on Broadway, toward bosom buddy Angela Lansbury for describing her age as somewhere between 40 and death. She is nothing compared to the Wilkinson daggers my mother and her sisters throw some days at the Oleo restaurant and bar, like daughters of Zeus not discussing art, but brands and shades of hair dye. Study the masters, Lucille Clifton tells us, how I've studied her and Trethaway and Lau, watching their labor, inviting the craft to sing in me. Also, I study my mother and her sisters. I've learned to run from them, unlike Kwame Dawes' approach to poetry. I run to it, he explains in a workshop. Beverly asked for an honest answer from Donnie, Debbie, and Jeannie after too much Riesling. Is my hair a shade too blonde? And that is a girl thinks of B. Arthur's stare. <laughs> I thought I'd make you laugh on that one after the you make me, You know, make me laugh. <laughs> make me laugh. Yeah, I immediately thought of the Golden Girls. <laughs> and okay, yeah. well, I mean, that is definitely what I'm going for here. And right. if you, I mean, if you, yeah, B. Arthur has that death stare. 
And that's what yes, my <laughs> She gave it to Rose never... many times. <laughs> Bless you. Very good, very good. You know. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I'm just happy you're here. Talk to me. Talk to me. <laughs> I am too. I apologize. I, but embedded in this poem and why I picked it is because that concept you asked about emotion. And here it's more about mm-hmm. kind of noticing. I mean, there is emotion. I'm terrified of my aunts. And I do kind of mm. keep my distance from them. Um, and I do study how they treat each other. Um, but it also is about noticing. So noticing how they interact with each other. Um, but then also, like, what I've chosen to notice and study are poets like Lucille Clifton and Natasha Trethewey, right, and Kwame Dawes. Yes. So um, yes. I would much prefer to spend time studying them than studying kind of this petty interaction that my mother and her sisters oftentimes have with right. each other. Um, so, you know, I, I don't it, – it, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at my notes. The last time you joined me was 6-24-2020. That was, <laughs> yes, More than that was truly pandemic time. <laughs> that was the heart of it, yes. Wow. So in terms of your writing, what was the initial, what am I saying here, the initial, that aha moment where you may have felt, let me write in this direction, as opposed to what oh. I've written in the past. That's so interesting. Um, so with this collection, I wanted it to be um, a lot more about moving forward. I wanted momentum mm-hmm. in it and growth, and um, I wanted it to point toward joy and self-awareness and um, strength. Um, Whereas I think the previous collection was making sense of um, some hardships that I had gone through mm-hmm. or was going through. Whereas here, yes. I definitely touched upon that. But here in this collection, it's much more about the, the poet's voice is more about um, transformation and moving forward. All right. You know, this may be the same thing, but is a poem letting your guard down or building a wall? Oh, Wow. <laughs> See, I've changed in two years. <laughs> I ask more wow. in-depth questions now, Candice. <laughs> I was scared two years ago, but I'll ask now. <laughs> yeah, no, you're diving in now. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm going to say it's about letting your guard down. I mean, I think it's a vulnerability. Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, I think these if these last two years have shown us anything as human beings, it's that we're vulnerable. And um, as scary as that is, that's where the connection can be found. And what we need more than anything today is connection. Um, yes. And how can you have connection without vulnerability? So I do offer to let my guard down in my poems. And, and I've paid a little bit of a price for that, too. I mean, I'm, you know, mm-hmm. clearly I'm sure there's many critics of my work just from a poetic standpoint. But... Also just, um, you know, it can make people uncomfortable when, you know, you make yourself raw and available and say, hey, this is who I am and this is what I'm going through and these are my thoughts and here's how I see the world right now. Uh, But, uh, you know, I'm all about truth. And mm-hmm. I'm at, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I, I will not hide who I am and what I feel and what I believe. 
Um, Very nice. And I think that, that, thank you. And that gives my, my writing as well as my own um, sense of self um, a mm-hmm. great deal of, you know, um, perseverance and strength. Well, with that in mind, tell me about a poem you were proud of writing, but afraid to <laughs> share for fear of misinterpretation. Oh, um, would it, uh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, that's a, mm. well, I guess it would be one that is, um, it was about a drive home from parents' weekends. Um, okay. And my son, my son was away for a semester at a military academy, and mm-hmm. my husband and I drove up there to visit him. And the drive back was a little um, tense. I don't know if you've ever had a fight with a loved one. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes, many. About disagreements in a marriage. Um, so I did write about that. Um, and I, that was, that's part of the reason why this book has a third-person perspective or voice okay. um, is right. to kind of reduce a lot of the personal in it but and make it a little more universal, hopefully. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, many of my poems are persona poems where it, it's not something that has happened to me, but I'm exploring it from another, you know, from an imaginary, you know, standpoint. But this one I think so because um, – I think it paints the the paints the marriage as broken, um, which it very okay. much is not. But it is. Mm-hmm. But there are many little tiny breaks in relationships, marriage or mm-hmm. otherwise. And I think that those yes, little tiny so. breaks, those yeah, those little shatters, are worth noticing and looking at and delving into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, but I fear that it could be misinterpreted as oh well, that's a messed up marriage, which is not the case at all. all. Right. All right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your honesty. I really, really do. Sure. Please share another poem. I want to hear another poem. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, let me give you um, this one. This is um, called Ballad of the Renter. So this would be um, written from the perspective of, you know, renting in Los Angeles um, because it's too expensive to own a place there. And renting, um, my family – would have to pick up and move every couple of years because either the home was being sold or being sold to tear down and build condominiums. But, you know, it's, it's not easy to rent in a city like Los Angeles. So you're constantly having to move, which is hard on children. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is Ballad of the Renter. My children ask, who is knocking at the door? Progress, I tell them, before tossing the hungry realtor's card away. They seem to be coming out of the woods these days, and we are merely a blighted basket of goodies to be sold. My children will ask why we must move again. I redirect. The real question is how to tell the neighbors we won't be part of their morning routine or Halloween hellos. Perhaps we should tell them the same way we were told to leave, a notice of pending demolition in the front yard. The house has been sold to a developer for millions. I imagine they'll take the brass ceiling fans, the plaster of Paris, and save the bay windows for the next project while measuring the length of our gutters. 
They see growth in equity marked up the side of our kitchen door jam with multicolored pencils, dollar signs, not inches. We moved to a new street thinking we've evaded the wolves of progress, but a new pack waits to pounce upon our cat. We hang pictures, activate Wi-Fi, and reassemble bunk beds deeper into this Thai cave of renting in Los Angeles. My kids stop asking me to mark their height on the wall. They are cargo jettisoned by Jonah's shipmates. If only I could crawl inside the belly of this costumed city and pull out our neighbors from the Pacific Avenue apartment and splinters from the craftsmen on pier and drawer pulls from the mid-modern on Manchester. We wade out of the U-Haul, wet, worn, and wearing this crimson cul-de-sac like a hood. I tell my kids, somewhere along the way, we have become grandmother's house with wolf windows so big, better to watch us with, as we rent where 74th meets the 405. And that's Ballad of the Renter. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. That's, you know, that's a poet's favorite response. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you really put it out there. I mean, you it's raw in my mind, unadulterated. You you share what it is. Yes, thank you. That's what I aim to do. And I hope that somebody can relate to that because I know that I can't yes. be the only person who has felt that. Yes. So what moves you, my friend, to write a poem? What is the core impulse for you? It is a, uh, it's, it's an undeniable urge that it just has to be done. So it's not okay. something that, that I can brush away. Um, so, you know, often I'll have to pull the car over and sit down in my, you know, in my phone and um, speak into record my voice or something and come back to it later. But, um, you know, the thought is urgent and it's, Something sparkling. That's all. I mean, it sounds silly, but something that's just, mm-hmm. it lights up and I can't ignore it. Um, and I realize, oh, oh, I see where this is going. And oh, that's, so, that's so exactly what I want to express. And then I, I go with it. Um, so, for instance, um, you know, I was sitting at a baseball game my son was playing and it all just seemed to come together uh, with a, a, a group of, uh, I guess, just associations all just came together at once and I said oh this is my next poem and I jotted down everything I needed to jot down and so I can't ever forget that moment of where this just it just lights up inside and you think oh this has to be a poem I mean you know think of a of a a pregnant woman I mean you you know if you're in labor there's nothing you can do that's got to happen right so that's how it kind of feels I mean it feels like there's something bubbling up that really needs to become or needs me to help it to become what it already is. And so then I'm just, you know, I just run with it. And it's so fun. You know, I mean, who doesn't yes, want to do something continue. fun? Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just at the, at the base, fun. Well, I don't know. For some reason, I just want to say that you seem different. I don't know. I, oh. You were great last time. You were phenomenal. Thank you. Thank you. But you seem, you seem, I don't know, just more, I don't know what it is. Is it a the good poetry difference is or a different. bad difference? A good, a fantastic, an incredible difference. Okay. An incredible like difference. It. I'll take Do it. Do you really? 
Do you really? Yeah, I do. I am different. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear that it's positive. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Wow. I commend you. Last question before we take a brief break. Do you think you live your life like it's a poem? Hmm. Well, I don't know that my children would say that. (laughs) 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 Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) But I will, but I, but I do, I do see the rhythm in the days and I see breaking the rhythm and I see the free verse and the blank verse of, you know, our habits and our schedules. Um, and so I do try to see the poetry in my everyday life, which may not always be there. But um, I do think that it is admirable to try to live life like it's a poem. I mean, it is short and it is meaningful and it does have a volta at many different points in our lives. So uh, I don't know. I'll have to think about that one. I think you just inspired my next poem. All right. <laughs> well, let's take a brief break. <laughs> let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back. uplift me. Yes, your words uplift Thank me. You. Please share a poem. Definitely. Hopefully this one will be uplifting as well. This is called That Woman Walks Back to Joy. A woman reads her pocket Whitman in the bleachers as the catcher warms up her son. Behind him, a tier of white skyscrapers like science lab skeletons flanked by mad palm trees and the outfield fence that separates him from six skateboarders landing tricks. She watches him, now 14, skater masked and broad-shouldered, inhale and exhale. She likes to think he enjoys this, though she knows he hears the halting scrapes of pivots, knows he sees the barrel jump and rail of long and lean skaters, confident as hell, with the glow of doing what they love. Outstretched arms like the sole of a bird with sudden explosions of flight that dip as her pitches his fastball to receive it back into his glove. The love of forward and reverse, of air and speed into leather womb and out again. This re-entry after a year of no baseball, a year of stay-at-home orders and county protocols. He will stand on the mound a different kid. 
who's been through a hell of his own. Quit ball and skate, quit school and disappear. Today he stands on the other side of adolescence, that chain link fence through which they both can see who he used to be, maybe still is, or always will be. The backpacks and Arizona tees, focused and fast, kick flip freedom, swivel and wingspan over the wavering deck and curve of the spine, long and dark as the hours spent on the five stair. Now this park is catching the sunset. Bone cold buildings fade like a year or a child who has found the way back to joy. He's come home finally from the anger that rolled and roiled his mind into nights on the back porch while she slept and he smoked, inhaling the spirit of disenchantment. She imagines him trying to exhale her failure as he skated farther away from the leathery warmth of a maternal toss and catch rhythm that today seems somehow harmonious at the top of the fifth with two outs. He balks and turns to the ump, unfazed by his error or by the skaters slouching by the plate, satisfied with their footage. She thinks about that New York Times article from a few years back claiming America's boys are broken and are killing us. She closes her Whitman as the ump calls ball game. Her son joins his teammates to tip his hat and shout, thank you, parents. And that is that woman walks back to joy. Oh, wow. (laughs) If possible, if possible, please kind of guide us through the stages of developing that particular poem. How did you do it? Yeah. So this was, um, you know, nearing the end of uh, lockdown in Los Angeles. My son hadn't played baseball for a year. So during that Mm -hmm. time, he was really into skateboarding at the parks, um, and uh, got into some bad habits, and it was just a really um, difficult, dark time for a 13-year-old boy, and um, yes. had some struggles, a lot of struggles, and, um, you know, we, we just loved each other through it, and this was the first baseball game back after that, and I was sitting in the bleachers reading my Walt Whitman, waiting as he was warming up the pitch, and I just felt this overwhelming joy that maybe things can come back to normal. Not that skateboarding is bad, but that my son, you know, coming back to something he loved in addition to loving mm-hmm. skateboarding. And mm-hmm. I saw these mm-hmm. skateboarders kind of doing their thing, and he was out there doing his thing, pitching. And it was just the two sides of kind of his his life, things that he loved. And, you know, as a parent, it's wonderful to be able to step back and take yourself out of the equation and see your child as, the, as, as you know, his own human being. You know, it has nothing to do yes. with me. He loves skating. Mm-hmm. He loves baseball. He's had a hell of a year, and he's at that pivotal age of 13, now 14, and um, mm-hmm. just the overwhelming, I'm getting emotional talking about it, but the overwhelming beauty of that and seeing him pitch and then seeing him mess up on the mound where in the past he would beat himself up over it and he shook it off, um, and we kind of made it through that together. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, and then I, I, I'm very much – um, a huge Walt Whitman fan. I love the sound element in his poetry, so I tried to bring the sound elements into this poem with the baseball terminology and the skateboarding terminology. Anyways, that's what I was trying to do. All right. You know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature 
Once it's out oh, there, yeah. there's not much you can do to correct or improve it. While others edit right. meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it, the editing process? Oh, my word. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, need to, <laughs> I need to do more of it. I'm just so quick to kind of, oh, this is where it needs to be, and I, I need to be better about sitting with it, sharing it with my, you know, fellow writers, and I have a, gr- I have mm-hmm. a fantastic group of poets um, with whom I share work. I told you the community is really great. Um, it, it's wonderful to share work with other poets and, and see things that you didn't, that you were blind to because it was too personal or it was too close or you were too ready to be, you think it's, you know, you're too ready to say this is where it needs to be and it's not. Um, so I think having other eyes look at your work and say, you know, are you trying to go here with this because it doesn't quite make it? Whereas I think, oh, I've made it where I wanted to go and it's not even close, but just one little thing to change it would make it so much better. Um, but yeah, I do think that you, you, you have to, at some point, let it go, just like, um, you know, a child or something, you know, you have to see it as its own when it's ready to be its own and and let it go. I don't look back at, at work that I've published and think, oh, I would change that. I don't allow myself to. Many poets okay. will see work published and say, oh, I should have changed that. Well, why didn't I? You know, aside from a typo or something, but I don't mm-hmm. at all. Once it, has, once it has been accepted and published, I don't allow myself to second guess it, and I let it stand as its own, and I'm just allowing myself to feel good about it. Uh, but before I've done that, yeah, I, I could constantly tweak something. Um, if that answers your question. Yes, it does very much so. Please share a poll. Oh, sure. I'd love to do this. Okay. Um, let's go with, okay. Um, this is, um, if, if, if any of your listeners have ever, or if you have ever dealt with somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, this may ring a little true. Um, uh, my, my mother, um, uh, pretty much a textbook narcissist, and so this is about an incident of in- interacting with her. Um, this is called Ave Virum Corpus, or the true, the true body, Ave Virum Corpus. Sitting on my doorstep this Sunday afternoon while my daughter beats her father a second time at Mancala, I see a baby lizard gumdrop green by my feet, moving only its paintbrush head The slender torso remains still, like the red brick canvas holding us both. From my mother. My heart bursts with love for you. I can physically feel it. And my cats stand watch in the window, linked to the lizard's every twitch. Only now, it is brown. I Google, why do lizards change colors? And learn, this tiny guy is an animal who turns brown from stress. Or fright. I blame my husband who protests his third loss at Mancala, but he points at our domestic short hairs, silent as spider silk, watching their prey scurry up the wall. Love bombing is something else I recently learned about. It's the narcissistic mother's gambit in a cycle of manipulation. It almost always results in a victory. I notice the lizard is again green as my daughter counts the glass stones, closing her wooden case like the eyelids of a small animal. Can I drive down and visit you this summer? My mother texts. I fall for it. Sure. 
and she drops her stones one by one into the divots of my inner child. I turn brown. Or you could drive up here, you know. And that's Ave Virum Corpus. Wow. When I listen to your work, I just need a minute to just allow it to sink in. Yeah. And I, and I, I know really it's hard do. because you don't have the text in front of you, but um, hopefully mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reading it well enough for, for you to... Yes, yes. To you let are. It in. Yes. And if you can, I'd like you to describe your relationship with poetry. And what I mean by that is how has it developed and changed, you think, throughout your life? Hmm. That's, my, uh, that, that's not an hour. <laughs> you don't have to spend an hour answering that. That might be a big question, but <laughs> how has it changed, my friend? Um, yeah, well, I think it was um, – it was a lifeline for me as a child to okay. kind of scribble poems. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, in college and grad school, it was academic. It was um, something that I could intellectually find traction with and enjoy mm-hmm. the pursuit of analyzing and, um, you know, writing papers about and getting to know you know, the, um, you know, the stuff of poetry. Uh, and then I would say, um, you know, when adulthood and real life hits, um, it's gone back to being a lifeline again. So, you know, full circle. Um, I mean, it, the, the best metaphor for it is it's, it's breath. It's breath to me. I mean, I, I, I can't, I couldn't survive stuff of life without reading, inhaling poetry mm-hmm. written by others and exhaling my own verse, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So it really is. Um, I, I had a, I had a person ask me, actually my therapist. <laughs> asked oh me, yeah. I got, you know, I've got uh, one too. <laughs> I've had a lot of them. <laughs> I know like, oh, therapy. Yeah. <laughs> That's not boring to me. Right. Okay. Good, 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 good. Um, she said, um, how do you have time to, to write all these poems, you know, working full time and having three kids and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I don't have time not to. I mean, I really couldn't not do it. Um, I would be a, a very unhappy person. Um, yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, and that doesn't mean I'm good at it. It just means I love doing mm-hmm. it. It's That's a right. part of my life. That's but, right. Um, That's all right. You know. Because we all know, but, yeah. we both know that good is relative. And you may not know this, Candace. I'm a retired professor of counseling. So I believe oh. in good mental health. I believe in seeking services where you can talk to someone who can be potentially objective to your story. That is so important. Yeah. So important. I champion Absolutely. that. So I commend you. I commend you. All right. That's awesome. I knew right. I that's right. I knew. <laughs> now, now we're at my favorite part of the program. I view it as being a mini poetry concert. Okay. So please share three or four of your poems back to back. No questions from me. We just want to hear your voice. Yes, sir. And you work. Okay. Okay. Should I go? Yes, please. Okay. This poem is written for. Um, a dog, my neighbor's dog, 
uh, who uh, kind of got us through uh, the pandemic. And his name is Wink. For Wink, she had faith in a one-eyed pit bull named Wink. He lived across the street during the lonely stay-home days of 2021. After teaching on Zoom all day, she would ride her bike through Westport Heights, a few miles from Los Angeles International Airport. She couldn't hear the engines overhead, but the streets were named Kitty Hawk, Flight, and Boeing. She noticed something poetic about a lockdown, an airport, and a girl on a bike, but forgot what that was exactly. Her neighbor took Wink on long, slow walks every morning and afternoon. Once, he couldn't get him to stand up and keep moving. The girl on the bike waved every time she saw them. It made her happy. She remembered that George Harrison's mother played weekly broadcasts of Radio India while she was pregnant, hoping the Eastern music would be calming. She also remembered George Harrison's ashes were scattered across the Ganges. Her own mother chain-smoked while pregnant. She imagined an ashtray beside her mother's hospital bed in labor and delivery. A text came in a year later. Wink had to be euthanized. She wants to forget he will be reduced to ash. She plucks the spokes of her bike like a sitar. And that's the end of For Wink. Next I'll read. Uh, A woman leaves. A woman leaves like they left the motel across the Utah state line. That night they drove 17 hours straight. Does he remember? No vacancy from Scott City to St. George. She wants to give him something like that room where they slept with its grime and stench and obscenity and shame like a bundle. She gives him something before she leaves so he'll know they cannot go another day together, cannot cross another state line together. Take this pit. She releases her heavy emptiness from her chest. It's fine, and it's all right, and it's okay, and stop crying now. It's his to have, and it's him it haunts like truck stop shadows under the love's sign mocking them that night. She can now declare vacancy. And now I'll read um, The Girl Drinks Grape Soda with an introductory quote by uh, Rilke. My God is dark and like a web, a hundred roots silently drinking. A woman has a black cat who hides most of the week. When he does peek around the corner to see if the coast is clear or to stare at the fish tank, this woman calls softly, Hawk, Hawkeye, baby boy, grape soda. But he runs like she's a monster from that awful 54 film called Them. He treats her like the clawing horror horde of crawl and crush ant giants when all she wants to do is stroke his velvet tail or scratch his cloud puffed belly. Tonight, however, he comes to her, puts his head down in love, like Louise Bogan's terrible horse, with an unexpected charm that he alone claims. And that is why he is nicknamed Grape Soda, sometimes 
cold bottle of grape soda. When this woman's daughter discovers her first real bottle of grape soda in the back refrigerator of Ridge Road Bait and Tackle, one summer trip to the lake, she finally understands. As the crisp, cool tartness tumbles its way down her throat, she realizes the ache within her own throat is the shape of God's hand. He has been reaching for the scruff of her neck this whole time, swiping after her wayward tail. His hand, a cloud puff, opening every back road, reach-in refrigerator door, calling softly. That's the girl drinks great soda. (laughs) And we'll do the beast. This is, uh, sorry, a girl rides the beast. Uh, And uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, where the music park is called Kings Island. Um, And my favorite ride was the Beast Roller Coaster. The world's longest wooden roller coaster is undergoing 2,000 feet of track refurbishment. Aptly called the Beast, it's been the pride of Kings Island for 40 years. An eerie image shows the missing track on the curve into its first tunnel. Design imperfections on wooden roller coasters make for large tolerance, a term that simply means the ride is rougher and louder than prefabricated steel coasters. A woman imagines the carpenters involved in the retracking, how they brave the southwestern Ohio weather to manually reassemble it how they converge under silent river birch trees at one of the noisiest intersections on the map of theme parks. She was one of the first to ride the beast opening day, 1979, a rare privilege and probably the only professional perk of her father's 35 years at General Electric. She was nine. He was 41. Together they flew forward a historic 65 miles an hour. The woman has searched the YouTube footage of that day. She sees him in all the broad-shouldered men, herself in all the jittery-jump little girls who hadn't the faintest idea that life would require a large tolerance or that wooden tracks could fail. On the other side of life's second tunnel was the double helix called Alzheimer's. She learns there are no carpenters for that. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. More? Well, yeah. before we do that, okay. <laughs> uh, how how would you classify your ability to write poetry as a creative gift or creative art? Hmm. I would definitely say an art. Mm-hmm. Um, because a gift, I guess, you know, a gift, that's a tough one. I, I see I an art only because it's, um, it's a constant pursuit that requires okay. practice and growth and humility. Mm-hmm. Whereas a gift to me feels like a self-contained item of some sort mm-hmm. or a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think an art is a true, a true something that is for its own sake. In other words, it's, okay. it's, it's a way of 
being in the world, but it's also a way that requires practice and All right. relationship. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. I mean, and there are no rights or wrongs. No rights or wrongs. It's just, just one of those questions. Okay. And I guess I do the gift. And again, this is the very first time that I've really talked about this. I guess maybe the gift is life. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, I agree with that. And I think it's, um, it's life and it's, it's all that life brings with it. I mean, it's the green yes. on the, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the difficult relationships. It's, uh, you know, having to humble yourself and try to understand, you know, where someone else is coming from. It's, the loss of a pet, you know, it's uh, of a dog or um, it's trying to see the beauty in the violence all around us, you know, trying to use words to, um, to, to guide you to safety, to guide you to some sense of contentment. Mm, yes. Well, let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Sure. back. I'm here with Candace M. Kelsey. Candace, I want to know, you know, I view myself as being a good listener, all right? And I know you that your book is divided <laughs> thank you. Your book is divided into four sections, and you read a piece from a girl, one from a woman. Now, did you read anything from teacher or poet? Those two sections. Um, I have not. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, you, you, the title of your book is phenomenal. So please read a poem from the section teacher and one from poet. I'd love that. You got it. Okay. Um, I'll read this one from teacher. Uh, okay. Uh, this teacher considers Burger King. <laughs> Grab a sandwich. The dean of faculty encouraged each of them as they came through the media center doors after eight hours of teaching. Perched on the table were the crimson and white paper bags that seemed to bewitch Southerners and Christians alike. You know that mischievous cow who encourages us to eat more chicken and donates to charities. She declines, sorry, I'm a vegetarian and dutifully thanks her administrator for generosity, her generosity in providing food at this meeting. She knows how to behave, even when it's not Sunday. The dean of faculty begins to unveil her controlling metaphor. Our school is Chick-fil-A, not Burger King. The teacher's mind wanders to the impossible Whopper in all its delicious glory, but refocus, realizing she means that their private uh, PWI, which opened its doors in 71, two years into phase two of desegregation, 
is superior, we provide the service you see from Chick-fil-A, not, while the dean of faculty must have said Burger King again, the teacher was distracted by her convergence of professional educators and fast food workers battling at the drive through window over how well they could execute the four-step model, eye contact, smile, engagement, enthusiasm. So as you are teaching, remember the $20,000 tuition pays for the Chick-fil-A at the Veterans Day program the next day, an American flag was presented by three men in historic military uniforms. One of them wore gray, representing Confederate soldiers. As she caught her breath, the teacher wondered if her students could smell the Chick-fil-A. <laughs> All right. That one's a little cynical. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, so yeah, just you know, uh, good to point out some of the some of the inner workings of uh, the education system. They're not all simple. Yes. Though. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to hear another one? Yes, I'd love to. Okay, um, so this one, uh, this is a shorter one. Uh, her student late to class. She tosses herself into my classroom a few seconds late, not so much a beach ball as a fistful of dust, colorful and airborne, a quasi-Nepalese celebration. She asks permission to share the magical reason for her tardiness. A mountainous neon floral print beanbag labeled free on the curb of 23rd, she could not refuse. And while I listen to this flutter of youth in all its wild tensions between task and surprise, I slowly close my laptop and forgo today's PowerPoint on the beauty of poetry. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, so, uh, another one from, if, would you like another one from te- the teaching? Let's move to poet. Let's move to poet. Move into poet? Okay, you got it. Yes. All right. Um, this one's called This Golden Globe. Um, on January 5th, 2020, the 77th Golden Globes aired. Across the globe at that time, Australia was on fire. Imagine it the other way around that night. The sexy pops of flash kindling this red carpet spectacle of celebrity. A wildfire parade of heat and flame and smoke. Bursts of cheers become fear as glitz and breath become choking inside the Beverly Hilton. A conflagration swallows tables and stilettos. Neat beards are singed while Ricky Gervais exits backstage. Trapped, Robert De Niro sizzles. Ellen grabs two bottles of Moet to douse Jennifer Aniston's back. But the image that goes viral is Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. Beautiful but burnt, climbing chairs toward Gwyneth Paltrow, who is naked and wiping ash from a false lash. She swaddles Hanks and Streep in her gown. She carries them to water. 
Across the globe sit impeccably groomed koalas inside live kangaroos and possums half a billion strong under the moonlit ether. Not a care in the world. Glad to be what they are and where they are, safe and important. They watch the cool sky glitter this January night down under, convinced the stars burn just for them. And that is this Golden Globe. Wow. You know, my friend, we've almost reached the end of our journey together. Oh, but no. I would like to okay. hear one more piece, one more piece from the poet section, if you don't mind. Got it. Um, let me give you. Um, all right. Uh, I'm gonna give. I'm gonna end with. Um, let's end with. Uh, how about we never bothered with the rose garden? Okay, we never bothered with the rose garden. At the Huntington Library, we trekked toward the tussled little squares of whorehound, licorice, lavender, mignonette, and heliotrope, waiting impatiently like overgrown graves with bamboo soles hovering mid-trellis dance for people like us who strolled on occasion when the weather was just right past the tea room into the herb garden sustenance of thumb and forefinger rubbing like grasshopper's legs to release the scent of garlic chive and lemongrass, even lovage, borage, or sometimes marjoram. Such funny words that seem to rub together now and release the memory of a time when my children had no interest in the predictability of roses, preferring again and again the chaotic clusters of sweet alisum, which I've come to learn means worth beyond beauty. That's we never bothered with the rose garden. Oh, beautiful! You know, before you. we close, I must ask you about the cover of your book. It's quite striking. <laughs> Tell us about the process for coming up with the book, the book cover. So I would love to claim um, that this is my idea, but uh, my editor, um, who goes by the name Red. And he is um, the, I guess, uh, he is Alien Buddha Press. He does all the artwork. And um, if, you, if you ever get a chance to look at some of the other um, publications from Alien Buddha Press, he always has just these tremendous, funky uh, covers. And here he went a little wild, and I absolutely loved it. Um, the cigarette is interesting. Um, I think it's kind of like representing the heart, you know, the release after the hard work of transforming from a girl to a woman to a teacher to a poet, at least that's how I see it. Um, but he came up with this on his own, and um, my first collection was black and had a black and white cover, so I love that this is much more colorful, which really does represent where I am. All right. You know, so now we've had an opportunity to hear from a girl, woman, teacher, poet, what piece of advice would you give to the readers of the book? Oh, um, okay. Um, I would say um, allow yourself to um, attempt to identify with some of the voices in this book. Um, and if, if not possible, then to open up um, – 
channels to your own empathy for people in your life who may have similar experiences um, Mm -hmm. and allow your heart to be softened. That would be my advice. All right. Where can listeners find your work, my friend? Where can they find your work? Ah, so um, this one is exclusively on Amazon. Um, You just put in Candace M. Kelsey, um, it'll pop up. Um, And uh, also my website, which is Candace M. Kelsey Poet. Dot org. So um, my website also has links to that. Um, and I'm also on Twitter, Candace Kelsey One. All right, all right. <laughs> all right, so <laughs> Candace, what's next for you? Where do you go from here? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, hopefully I get invited back to your show at some point. You have an opening, but just just text me, call me. <laughs> you can come back next week if you want to. <laughs> um, but I also I have um, I have another full length manuscript that's uh, being shopped around right now. Hopefully, you know somebody will it'll, somebody will pick it up um, and and take it home and care for it. <laughs> I'm also yes. representation. Um, I'd love to have an agent. Um, and then I have a couple of chats being around as well. But honestly, uh, Michael, I, I'm just going to keep writing. All right. I know you yeah. state that you mentor emerging writers. Tell me about that yes. before we go. That's the last thing. Sure. Um, I work with um, students who are in uh, middle high school and college who need help with writing, academic as well as creative. Um, I also um, work with Pen America. They have a beautiful prison and justice um, writing program, and I'm paired with an incarcerated writer, and he and I exchange uh, letters and work back and forth, and we collaborate, wow. and uh, I give him feedback, he gives me feedback, and we're actually going to um, do a collaborative piece together that we're hoping, uh, you know, I'll try to do the legwork to get it published. Um, but that has been the experience of a lifetime. It was a dream come true. I've always wanted to teach in the prison system. Um, and this was sort of the next best thing, which is being able to have this um, correspondence back and forth with uh, a very gifted writer who is incarcerated. Wow. You know, Candace, I felt you were phenomenal back in 2020. <laughs> you're even more phenomenal now <laughs> you've exceeded yourself <laughs> you really have I mean I have thoroughly well thank you ma'am I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to your work you know I'm the kind of poet the kind of person the kind of reader who likes to read work that's accessible I like to read stuff I can understand honestly I don't really want to work too hard to solve a poem and uh, mm-hmm. that's just my thing. And I feel your work is being accessible. I understood it, and it touched me. I appreciate that. Because wow. it was so real. That's a gift. It was so real. Yes, yes. I mean, again, I want to thank you for joining me tonight. I wish you nothing but the best. I hope a girl, woman, teacher, poet sells out everywhere around the world. So people can discover you <laughs> and invite you to speak now that the pandemic has gone down. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, I appreciate that. It's well, been right, such a then. pleasure to be on here with you. Well, thank you, ma'am. All right, everybody. We made it through a fantastic program. We learned a lot. So I want to thank you for tuning in as I do every episode.
And as I always state, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everyone. Good night, Candice. Good night, sir. All right. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.